the year is 995. England was at war. It was actually two wars being fought on two different fronts. Close to home, it was a conflict where this advanced and fairly rich nation-state was at war seemingly with itself. A new generation of nobles had arisen who seemed more content to line their own pockets. They appeared to be cowards, terrified of going into battle, looking for fast and dumb solutions to cover up their weaknesses. A wave of stupidity seemingly led by their rather weak-willed king, Ethelred. Further away, there was a war against the Vikings. Now, either this was in the form of the Vikings of the diaspora of the Irish Sea, or the armies of Denmark and Norway, but both had inflicted huge losses upon England, leading to massive payoffs just to get them to leave. Still, in this war, at least it wasn't all bad. The king, while seemingly to be weak-willed, had managed to pull off two big diplomatic victories lately. He'd gotten the residents of Normandy to stop supporting the Vikings, and he'd managed to set Norway and Denmark at war with each other, which was timely, as the diaspora of the Irish Sea was seeing a new generation of Vikings just about to step up their attacks. And London? In 995, London had just beaten off a ferocious attack by a huge Viking force, inflicting horrendous casualties upon them. London was defiant, strong, and setting an example to the rest of the country. Everything was to play for. Everything was up for grabs. Hi, my name is Saul, and I'd like to welcome you to the 25th chapter in the story of London. Welcome to the Wolves of London. It must be said, here and now, that regardless of what this episode talks about, London was focused mostly on day-to-day living. While wars make up the focus of history books, day-to-day life makes up the focus of people's existence. London during all this period was busy making things, buying things, selling things and, and running itself. This was the principal occupation and time consumption of every resident of London during this era. The town was becoming richer it was becoming stronger. It was actually becoming more militarised. In fact, the changes taking place in London were so big and so important that I'm going to spend an entire chapter on these changes soon. But for now, all we need to know is that while we focus in this chapter of the story on London's experience of the conflict in England, for the residents of the city-to-be, their world, their universe began and ended at the walls and the nearby surrounding territories. As 995 comes around, the English and Londoners had reasons to be both optimistic and pessimistic. While the king had gained some peace and now supposedly had some Norwegian mercenaries around to aid English defences, 
This didn't help with the fact that at a basic level, England was on the verge of becoming a failed state. It wasn't there yet, but it was moving closely towards it. There was an epidemic of fraud and corruption hitting the kingdom. Nobles seemed completely out of touch with the need to look after the people. The economic pressures of the two vast Danegales that had just been paid over the last few years had caused a massive impact upon the economy. And the truth was, well, no matter what he could do diplomatically, the king, militarily at least, appeared weak and ineffective. We also know there were epidemics of cattle diseases that threatened to cause a farming crisis, that the weather was fairly awful, and that human-borne diseases were prevalent and increasing. It was a seemingly dark time, and the dark tidings were reinforced in 995, when London discovered that their bishop, Elfstan of London, had also passed. The city waited to see who would replace him. And who they got was a stranger to them, but one they would soon learn to like, however. A man called Wolfston. Bishop Wolfston appears on the pages of London and English history out of the blue. He's utterly unknown as a person until he's made Bishop of London, but very quickly rises in rank and estimation and goes on to eventually, in a few years' time, become Bishop of York. We think he was from East Anglia, or his family was, and that he probably came up via Dunstan's Benedictine reformist movement within the church. He was clearly instantly seen as a serious legal expert. And we know almost immediately after his appointment, his name begins appearing third in the list of royal charters, suggesting he is almost instantly granted much respect and power in England from the status quo. Quickly, Wolfson gets a reputation as a ferocious intellect, a brilliant speaker and a powerful man. And London liked having powerful bishops. I mean, think about it, over the last five bishops of London before him, Bishop Theodred had been a close advisor to King Athelstan and had been placed in charge of the entire church in East Anglia. Bishop Dunstan had gone on to become Archbishop of Canterbury and was one of the most powerful men during Athelred's early reign. And Bishop Elfstan, well, he'd commanded English fleets into battle. London liked having important bishops. So Wolfstan was definitely cut from the cloth they approved of. Wolfton, on his part, was many things. But above all, he was a barnstorming homilist. Wolfton was arguably the most exciting, dynamic and thunderous preacher in Anglo-Saxon English history. He had a earthy style about him. He didn't like to use long-winded Latin metaphors to make obscure points of canon law. Wolfston spoke to his parishioners directly, clearly, straightforwardly, but also poetically. It is a pity we do not understand Old English because apparently in their original there was a music to Wolfston's sermons. They hit home and they hit home hard. And this was what he introduced to the passionate Christians of London. 
he would have caused a sensation. I mean, listen to the guy. I'm going to quote one of his sermons. Now, this wasn't a direct sermon we don't think he gave to the London parishioners in St. Paul's Cathedral, but it is a sample of the kind of sermons he became famous for. Imagine you are a Londoner, packed together in a large body in St. Paul's, and your bishop talks about the state of the world around you. And he says this, quote, May we then now see and know and very readily understand that the end of this world is very nigh. And many calamities have appeared, and men's crimes and wars are greatly multiplied. And we from day to day hear of monstrous plagues and strange deaths throughout the country that have come upon men. And we often perceive that nation rises against nation. And we see unfortunate wars caused by iniquitous deeds. And we hear very frequently of the death of men of rank whose life was dear to men and whose life appeared fair and beautiful and pleasant. So we are also informed of various diseases in many places of the world and of increasing famines and many evils we learn are here in this life become general and flourish and no good is abiding here, unquote. Yep, that sounds right up London Street. They would have looked out beyond their walls and understood. This is right. He is correct. These are the end times. This bishop, he knew his stuff. It's worth considering that Wolfston, while he was Bishop of London, would sign his letters Lupus Episcopus, the Wolf Bishop. Oh yeah, for a town who only a couple of years previously had butchered a shedload of Vikings for daring to attack their walls, for a town who supposedly had desperately wanted the English to use fleets to hunt down Vikings and tear their throats out as they slept, Lupus Episcopus was their kind of bishop. London had found a hero and a voice. Meanwhile, News arrived that Duke Richard of Normandy had died and his son, the young Richard II, had taken the title off Duke of Normandy. At first, no one was too sure what this meant for the treaty that the king had made. But news soon arrived that the new duke had gone back on the treaty and had allowed the Vikings to use his ports again. That news was also brought with the news that Normandy seemed also about ready to plunge itself into a civil war. The Londoners would have heard this news, and then they would have remembered sermons by Bishop Wolfston, echo in their ears, phrases like, quote, All the world strives greatly against proud people who will not obey God because of their sins, unquote. Amen, Your Grace, that makes sense. To hell with Normandy. London had heard their wolf. They understood things better now. By 997, there was a Witan in the town of Woodstock, and a new set of laws were issued at that meeting. Some historians maintain that the Woodstock Code, as these new laws are generally known, was the product of Bishop Wolfstan. And if so, then it says a lot about London's new bishop. 
the Woodstock Code was clearly written with the prevailing political ineptitude and corruption in mind and was focused on regulating the relationship between the ruling classes and the people. It was clearly issued as a PR move, a declaration of how things should be working. Of course, it didn't stop the endemic corruption, kickbacks and abuse of power taking place right across England, but if this law code had indeed been written by the new Bishop of London, and given that the Bishop of London was the town's only resident noble, then it suggests at least London was being run right, or it felt it was being run right. See, in Wollstone's view, the people should give homage to their nobles and duty to their nobles, and the nobles should, well, protect the people. This was how God intended things. It was only when the people turned their back on this order, like the people who said the king was weak, or the nobles fled battle, when people didn't do their duty, that would cause all this trouble. After all, to quote Bishop Wollstone again, quote, Beloved people, this earth was clean at its creation, but we have since greatly fouled it and defied it with our sins, and our misdeeds also constantly accuse us because we did not want to hold God's law as we should, nor grant to God what we should, nor do we give tithes as is required of us, nor distribute arms as we need to, but in every way all that we should do in God's grace lessens, and therefore much of creation also oppresses and strives against us, just as it's written, the world will fight for God against insensible men, which is in plain English, all the world strives greatly against proud people who will not obey God, because of their sins, unquote. By 998, it had been 18 years since Aethelred had taken the throne, and it had been 18 years since the Viking diaspora of the Irish Sea had kicked off this current round of raiding and attacks. If you remember back in chapter 22, we discussed that this massive onslaught had been blunted, not because of anything done in England, but because of pure blind luck across the Irish Sea. In Ireland, the expansionist policies of the King of Meath had seen the Irish Vikings lose the Battle of Tara, and with that, the numbers of raiders in the diaspora had dropped dramatically. Still, nearly two decades had now passed. The Viking communities in the Irish Sea were certainly more connected to their Scandinavian homelands now, as revealed by the likes of Olaf Tryggvason, who had one foot in the North Sea and one foot in the Irish Sea, it seemed. But the Irish Sea communities had grown again, and as far as we can tell, a new force emerged from the west coast of the Irish Sea this time, from the North Gale diasporan communities in Dumfries, Galloway and the Islands, and they were ready to step up operations. And over the winter of 998 and into 999, they did just that. But these raids revealed something was deeply wrong in England. The story of this campaign reads like a catalogue of misadventure and disaster. The Vikings came off the Bristol Channel and raided up the Severn Valley, 
and no force rose to stop them. After helping themselves, they took to the sea again, and then fell upon Dorset. The Londoners would have heard that an English army had been raised to fight off these Vikings. But then, before the battle had even started, the nobles leading the fjord had turned tail and ran. The army had dissolved, and Dorset was ravaged. And this pattern was repeated again and again, and in places much closer to London. The Viking fleet from the diaspora turned up at the River Medway. The traditional hunting grounds of the Vikings in the south, they were aiming for Rochester. Rochester had seen way too many battles for it at this point, and above all, it was only a day's march from either London to the north or Canterbury to the south. Rochester had long been a crucial town for London. If Rochester fell, London could be at risk. The reports for that year say openly that the Fjord of Kent was summoned, and we know from previous times that whenever they say the Fjord of Kent, that may have involved the Fjord of London, and if so, those Londoners were about to have a hard time. The accounts make it clear that the Fjord of Kent was to take to the field and hold the Vikings for as long as possible, and that reinforcements from other fjords would be sent to help catch the Vikings out. But whatever the plans, whatever the promises, no help materialised, and the army broke, left isolated and alone, and the western part of Kent was ravaged and despoiled. Rochester had been left undefended, and it had been looted, and the Vikings now had horses. What the hell was going on? The Londoners would have gazed at the burning towns right on their doorstep. What happened to the example they had shown? Where was the ferocity of the days of Alfred, the great king, who had led England to all these amazing victories? But as London gazed at the smoke rising from Kent, their wolf bishop knew why what was happening was happening. Quote, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, etc. The gospel says and makes clear that many portents must occur wildly in the world, both in the heavenly stars and in earthly movements, before the judgment comes that is common to us all. And certainly, just as a flood came once before because of sin, so also... A fire will come over mankind because of sin. And it is now coming very quickly. And therefore, there are many and varied evil events occurring widely among people. And it is all because of sin. And yet more evils and afflictions will come, as the book says, than ever happened before anywhere in the world. That is... When the Antichrist rages and terrifies all the world, and that is now coming very quickly. Unquote. Yes, that must be it. It had to be. These were the end times, and the good and virtuous men of London just had to hold fast. And it appeared as if the parishioners of Wollstone, the very wolf pack London sin, finally at this moment had their prayers answered, because the king finally seemed ready to act, and act in a way that London mostly desperately seemed to pray for. 
It had been years since the great ramshackle fleet had gathered in London. The operations of 992 took place over seven years before this date. But while the fleet then had been betrayed by an errant noble, something had begun. The English fleet had been ordered to be rebuilt, and now it appeared to be ready. The ship soak. The idea of the former Bishop of London, Dunstan, was now ready and a new operation was planned. A vast army would be arranged, one that was the fjord of all the land, the kind of force not seen since the days of King Edgar. And they were to march against the Vikings in Kent, but they would not do it alone. The new plan called for the new fleet of the realm to gather in London and there, in full force, to do what they were intended to always do. Attack the Viking ships, burn them, destroy them, and trap the Vikings in Kent. There, cut off from all possible escape, the National Fjord could grind them down and kill a lot of them. It was a simple plan, but a sound plan. London saw the many ships of the fleet of England gather and organise. They helped the crews prepare, and the men of London were finally ready to be part of a successful operation against the Vikings. Only... (sighs) All the records make it clear that the English fleet never arrived or didn't arrive until it was too late. The National Fjord was dissipated and driven off. The Vikings collected up a fortune and made off with their loot after having conducted a successful raid upon the region. And the reason for the non-showing or the delay? The records are very clear. Even when this new powerful fleet was ready to sail, the nobles placed in charge of this operation showed the same cowardice that showed on land and, quote, delayed from day to day, unquote. Can you imagine the frustration the Londoners would have felt about this? Here, finally, was a naval force, and all they had to do was sail and close the medway to the Vikings. That was it. But the nobles refused to even leave. In fact, we don't have to imagine the reaction of the Londoners. The records say that the nobles in charge eventually, quote, oppressed the wretched peoples who were on the ships, unquote, which is a nice way to say the nobles used violence to keep the ships moored at dock. It doesn't say why they did this. Maybe they didn't trust the king's plan. Or maybe they were doing this because one of their rivals was in the fjord and he could be killed. Or maybe they were just cowards. Whatever the reason, I do not think the residents of London would have cared one jot for their excuses. The impression we get is of a fleet ready to sail and to be kept in dock by cowardly nobles prepared to use violence against those who spoke out against this idea. In time, it may have sailed, it does appear to do so. The records say, quote, the forewarder it should have been, the later it was, from one time to another, unquote. Basically, joint Lancy operations were still a magnitude of complexity beyond the English capabilities. Indeed, it suggests that as the fleet sailed, quote, 
the Danes continually retreated from the seacoast and they continually pursued them in vain, unquote. It sounds like... Sounds like the purpose of the fleet, which was to seek and locate and destroy Viking ships, was being ignored for a policy of locate the raiders and engage them on land. And maybe that was so, we don't know. Whatever the case, quote, Thus in the end these expeditions, both by sea and land, served no other purpose but to vex the people, to waste their treasure, and to strengthen their enemies. Unquote. For me, this incident would have been one of the ones that had caused London to come close to snapping. It would have left them furious. The Vikings in Kent got to sail away with a fortune, probably stopping off in the newly opened ports of Normandy to sell what they could before returning to the safe waters of the northwestern Irish Sea to celebrate a raid well done. The cowardice and incompetence of the nobility was exposed for all to see. They did nothing but encourage the Vikings. England was a joke. And maybe it was someone like Bishop Wollstone who triggered a change, or maybe it was just the king being forced into a corner by such a humiliating loss. But for whatever reason, Ethelred's aggressive orders in the year 999 were not isolated. The king was clearly willing to do something different. He gave new orders. The fleet was to be placed under new commanders. And while the Vikings had gotten away, it was clear they had not escaped him. It appeared as if the king had had enough and had pushed for a new, previously unseen aspect of his rule. He was going to go on the attack. None of this half-assed hunting policy that we'd seen a few years previously. The English knew where the Viking fleet had gone and it was time for the most ambitious joint land-sea operation ever seen in English history. Ethelred was going to bring war to the Vikings. Now, for many historians, the actions of King Æthelred in the year 1000 present an obvious enigma. Why was this previously inept and weak-seeming king now suddenly going on the attack? The motives they give vary, but most tend to agree that this was a spoiling raid designed to punish those people. But whatever the case, the army, the great fjord of England marched north, aiming for Chester. And the fleet was sent from London and was supposed to meet them there. Only it didn't. Now, no one knows why they didn't quite make it and why the fleet was, eventually we find out, delayed. Given the ineptitude shown by the nobles in charge of the fleet previously, there could have been a chance that the nobles had dragged their heels or maybe prevented them from joining up on the campaign. I mean, that could be the explanation. However, it could just be down to the fact they were delayed due to inclement weather, or for any one of a hundred reasons. But the king was in no mood to wait for the fleet. And so, Æthelred of England marched north, into Strathclyde. This was not a strategic campaign. This was bloody revenge 
for the Viking attacks that just happened. The records say the Fjord of England devastated the region, quote, laying waste to most of the country, unquote. Now, what immediately follows this, I've seen described in two separate ways. The first way is that the fleet finally turned up late and the king kind of sent them out to do something useful. And another way is that what follows was the fleet acting without prompting. But for me, well, I'm going to say those explanations and then try to give the explanation that makes sense to me within my own narrative. Remember, this is my narrative of events. And while I will not fabricate or ignore events, the explanations for me just make sense given the London-focused narrative I'm telling. So for me, if the king and his army had just turned up and raided Strathclyde to get revenge on the Vikings who'd attacked them in Kent and who had returned here to divide up their fortunes and rest, then any attack by the English army would have been good, but it wouldn't have been effective. I mean, let's be honest here. You can burn every home. You can blind every child you don't enslave or kill. You can wipe out their livestock and cattle. But the men you want can simply get on some ships and you can't touch them. They can sail away. They've escaped scot-free. But imagine this happened and then an English fleet, somewhat delayed, turned up. The fleet that had been organised that had all the previous fleets in London. What would you then order them to do? Well, get after those buggers in the boat would be the most obvious answer. And so they did. The English fleet, containing the ships of London and crewed by the followers of the Wolf Bishop, sailed after the Vikings. And they had fled and the nearest safe port of call those Vikings would have gone to? The Isle of Man. Now, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says the fleet attacked the Isle of Anglesey, but virtually all the historians I've read believe that they actually fell upon the Isle of Man. I mean, maybe they did both, or maybe the scribe who wrote the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle sucked at geography. Either way, the fleet-based forces, the ships feared, fell upon the unsuspecting Isle of Man and the London sin in those crews allowed out their righteous fury and frustration. They devastated the island and probably sank any ships and put to sword anyone they suspected of profiting from the attacks on Kent. Men who lived in London stalked the fields of the islands of the Irish Sea bringing death in their wake. The fury of London was unleashed, given permission and command by their king. If the Antichrist was indeed on the way, the London sin of the wolf would meet him fighting. You would think they were done after this, but they were not, not even close. Because at this point, a moment in history takes place that is barely recorded in any English sources whatsoever, but is recorded in French ones. You see, this fleet, having left the Isle of Man, supposedly travelled to the Scottish coast and met up with the king again. And here, after he had ordered the, the land-based army supposedly to just march back home, the king is said to have joined this fleet 
and to have set sail because there was one last place he needed to call upon, one last place he intended to take revenge out upon. Normandy. Seventy years later, a Norman writer called William decided to offer his version of what followed. Now this William was writing in the aftermath of the invasion of 1066 when the Normans had invaded England. And of course, he wanted to draw parallels with that invasion. He then presents an epic tale of the foolish King of England being confounded when he arrived by a bunch of Norman peasants, virtuous French maids taking up the sword and the King blushing in humiliation at the failure of his forces. Mm. I think we should take that account in a document called the Gesta Normanorum Ducum with a large fistful of salt. What we do know is that the English fleet did fall upon Normandy and that Normandy would have had zero warning and that any fishing village or town would have felt the same anger wrath and deadly punishment the English had just inflicted upon the Isle of Man and Strathclyde. According to the French reports, the king had wanted to kidnap Duke Richard and take Rouen, but that sounds a little bit too much like William the Conqueror's motive seven decades later, you know? King Aethelred wasn't about regime change. He was here about righteous punishment. Duke Richard II, while only young, had only been in place for four years, and it is clear that he had not upheld his father's oath to prevent the Vikings from using his ports as shelter. That made him an oath-breaker. As well as that, one could argue that maybe when the English fleet had arrived and landed on Man, some of the Viking fleet who had left Strathclyde maybe fled from there, and they had fled to Normandy, and that maybe what was going on was potentially a pursuit. I mean, the wolf pack hunts. And we know London's preferred naval tactics was to use their ships to hunt down their foes after all. But regardless, even holding the Norman version of events as sceptically as possible, it does become clear that the English gained some success in the whole raiding and violating aspect of things, but it didn't make any lasting impact and they were defeated in battle. They were probably defeated by a local count called Nigel. But it wasn't as big a defeat as they would have us believe. There is specifically no mention of the Normans capturing any English ships left on Norman beaches due to lack of crews who'd all just been killed. And that's a kind of small detail they would have loved to add. No, the fleet was still intact and strong. And above all, the King of England got exactly what he wanted from the raid, a new deal. Duke Richard II agreed to uphold the treaty his father had made. No Vikings would be given shelter in Normandy. Historians like to make out that Duke Richard was the better for this deal, that he demanded Aethelred marry his sister at this point, and that was a big step up for the Duke. But, <sighs> all right, given that the young Emma, the, the name of his sister at this point, was way younger than the king, 
given that the king already had a bevy of sons, all of whom would be in line of succession before any offspring she produced. Given that when the poor girl arrived back in England, the king publicly decreed that everybody should call her Elf Gifu, which was the name of his first late wife, and given that much more than any treaty signed by the Pope, or insisted upon by the Pope, this new treaty was backed up by the fact that the King of England was now the young Duke's older brother-in-law. I see this as King Aethelred getting everything he wanted. This was a win. And in the most simple and brutal way to put it as possible, the King of England was using his fleet as a weapon, projecting the political will of England upon their neighbours, whether they like it or not. Well done, Aethelred. For me, as the Londoners sailed back to their home port, returning to London after this raid, they would have had reason to feel satisfied. They returned to a city with its wolf bishop, having fulfilled their duties and more. Their deeds upon the evil attackers of their nation, whatever those deeds were, however evil they would have been, these were justified. As Bishop Wolfston himself had said about the likes of the Vikings and other men who did not follow God's ways, quote, War to the one who earlier earned the torments of hell. There are eternal flames, grimly flickering, and there is eternal horror. There is groaning and lamentation and perpetual wailing. There is each and every terror and a crowd of all the devils. War to the one who must dwell there in torment. It would be better for him if he had never become a man than he come to this. For there is no one living who may tell of all the horrors that he must endure. He who falls entirely into that torment. And it is worst of all that no end will ever come for him in the world. <sighs> Alas, beloved people, let us do what is needful for us. Protect ourselves earnestly against that terror and help ourselves while we may and might, lest we die when we least expect to. But let us love God above all other things, and work his will as earnestly as we can. Then he will repay us, as will be most pleasing to us, when we have the best need." Unquote. Oh yes. As the ships glided into the docks of Aethelstanheit on the River Thames, and the bells of St. Paul's rang out in celebration at the safe return of London ships, they would feel well pleased that they had just been doing God's work. Things seemed to be turning around, after all. The children of the city of the Wolf Bishop had shown their teeth, and it had matched the mood of their king, now mature and seemingly coming into his own. 
London embraced a new age and a hoped-for new status quo. The world was changing, and London was changing around it. And that's the end of this chapter. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I hope you are all well and you enjoyed it. And I'll be back next week for another chapter in the story of London. As always, if you follow the link in the description of this episode, you'll find a free copy of the script for you to read along as well as listen along if you so desire. Thanks for everything. See you next week. Bye.